You're turning to Philippians chapter 3. Let me uh, say that we've already gotten off to a great start uh, with our new schedule. We had one class that has already outgrown their room at 8.15 and had to move down the hall taking coffee pots and donuts and cups and napkins and everything. That's a great problem to have at 8.15 in the morning. And uh, we've got another new class starting at 11. And uh, just a word to those of you who are our guests, we have a class called The Bridge, which will meet in the chapel at 11 o'clock. And if you are not already identified with a Sunday school class, we'd love for you to attend that class and be a part of it. It'll be a class for people who are not currently enrolled in Bible study and also for people who are our guests who may show up at 11 thinking that we have worship at 11. So we are excited about the new schedule because it gives us room uh, where we can minister to more people and reach more people and start new Bible study small group units. And uh, I'm glad that uh, I pastor a church where people are cooperative and uh, willing to work and willing to adjust so that we can do that. Do we ever arrive? I mean, is there ever a point in our lives when I got it? The package is wrapped, the bow is on top. My life is as it should be. Paul addresses this issue in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12, and he answers the question. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. If you've been a Christian very long, you have met people who, they come across way too strong. You know, it's like I've got it all together. There are no pieces of my puzzle missing. You know, I I know all the answers to all the questions. I've got everything wrapped up. Uh, I call them supra-saints because they're not teachable. Uh, They have already attained. Uh, They think they've gotten that because they've gotten some gift, or they think they've gotten that because they keep some set of rules. Some think that they are beyond temptation and sin. I had a professor in college who told me he hadn't sinned in 10 years. What I wanted to tell him is, let me hit you in the face and see if you sin. (laughs) You see, it's easy to make yourself the measure rather than Christ the measure of your Christian life. And when you do that, then you will measure everything by how everybody compares to you, not how you compare with what Christ has set as a standard for us. Paul says, I've not attained. Now, if you're not growing, there's arrested development in your life spiritually. 
If you stop growing, there's backsliding in your life spiritually. Paul says, I'm growing, but I haven't gotten there yet. Now, if Paul can say, I haven't gotten there yet, none of us should ever feel comfortable saying, I've gotten there. I've arrived. I've become everything God wanted me to be. We actually won't get there until we get to heaven. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Someone has written these words, and I I thought they were so important. The, The writer says you can always test any claimed blessing of the Holy Spirit in one way. And if it doesn't meet this test, it's not a valid experience. However you describe it or define it, and whether or not you even use the Bible, there is one valid test for any experience of the Holy Spirit. Does it bring me to a deeper knowledge of Christ? If it doesn't, it's not the work of the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Spirit testifies of Christ, and the Spirit came to glorify Christ. What matters is not, did I feel something, or am I excited? What matters is, do I know Christ more? If you don't know Christ more after an experience, then you must question the validity of that experience right away. Paul had an experience, and it made him want to know more of Christ. Now, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is a call, and it is a call to follow without reservation. And you really have to back up to verses 10 and 11 to to catch the full impact here. Paul is, is focusing on pursuing Christ, and in verse 10, he says, that I may know him. In verse 11, he says, in order that I may attain Now, to know Christ is to move toward Christ. If I'm going to get to know Christ, I'm going to be moving more and more toward Christ in my relationship and in my walk. I'm going to be pursuing His. I'm going to be pressing toward getting to know Christ. And and it's not just a decision or filling out a card. It is a lifelong process. Christianity begins with an event, but it continues with a process. There is a moment in which you and I are saved. But there is a lifelong process of dying to self and letting God do a new work in us and of disciplining our minds and our lives to be what God has called us to be. Some people spend their lives pursuing wrong goals. The old saying is you put the ladder up against a wall and you find out it's leaning against the wrong wall. Some people pursue fame, some pleasure, some power, some popularity, some the thrill of the deal. Some pursue sex and others drugs and some alcohol. But Paul says my pursuit, what I am passionate about, is a relationship with Christ. Now let's look at what Paul was passionate about. First of all, he was passionate to know the person of Christ. Not just to know about him, but to have an intimate relationship with him. 
Secondly, he was passionate to know the power of his life. He talks about the power of his resurrection. Paul wanted the same power that Christ had dwelling and abiding and overflowing out of his life. Thirdly, he wanted to know the passion of his love, that he could have a God, a Lord, a Savior who could love so much that he was willing to suffer so that others might be saved. Paul also had a passion for a partnership in his loss, being conformed to his death. Galatians 2.20 talks about dying to self. And in that passion, Paul was pursuing, not casually, not flippantly, but there was an intentional pursuit on the part of the Apostle Paul to get to know Christ more and more. I love the quote by David Livingston who said, I am willing to go in any direction provided it is forward. Livingston didn't want to go back. You, you see, it is easy for us to take detours, to get on side tracks and side trips and to get off in the ditch and to detour out of a pursuit from God. And, and it, you, you can be pursuing Christ and all of a sudden get detoured to something that looks almost as good to you at the moment, but it's taking you on a side trip you don't need to go on. Paul kept a focus. He stayed on the road. If you've been down our preschool hallway, we have a road down the hallway now. Just don't cross the stripe because we have officers standing there that'll get you. But we have stripes, and there's a road. And Paul said, I want to stay in my lane, in my, where I'm supposed to be going, and I want to keep moving down this road going forward in my relationship with Christ. Now, first of all, the Christian life begins with the call of God. Paul is pursuing, but he reminds us that the Christian life begins with the call of God. I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, we were dead in trespasses and sin. I was not alive to the Spirit of God. I was not alive to the movement of God in my life until God quickened me and convicted me that I was a sinner and the Holy Spirit showed me that the only way to be relieved from my sin and of my guilt was in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God put a call on my life. Paul says he chose us. He called us. Now, look in the Bible, and you will see that God chooses us before we choose Him. You see, getting saved wasn't your idea. Getting saved was put in you as a need and as a void and a vacuum in your life by the Holy Spirit of God. And so God calls us before we ever know that there's a call to be answered. Abraham. Abraham, get up and go somewhere where you've never been before. I'm going to take you to a place and I'm going to give you children. God called Abraham. God called Moses at a burning bush. God called David out of a shepherd's field. God told, called the prophets, some of them who were shepherds and some of them who were other leaders, and called them to be prophets. God called John the Baptist in the womb. God called the disciples. God called the apostle Paul himself. God's call on you demands... An answer. If God calls, He expects an answer from us and not to hang up on Him or to quit on Him or to say, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I've got to go. 
God's call expects and demands an answer. Secondly, the Christian life is a life of purpose. God's purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. God saved you to make you holy. God didn't just save you to get you out of hell. God saved you not just to get you to heaven. God saved you to make you holy so that on this earth you could be a living witness of who He is for His glory. Now, that call has a purpose, and that purpose is in our present conduct. You see, this is not about God called me and God saved me, and when I get to heaven, everything's going to be great. This is about how I act right now. The New Testament epistles are mostly written to deal with behavior, how the Christian is to behave, how the Christian is to act. It is knowing him now. My salvation has a purpose. God saved me for a reason. God has a plan for my life and for your life. You are not an accident. You are not just here by chance. God has a purpose. When God puts you on this earth, he puts you here for a reason. And you may think, I don't have a clue what that reason is. You need to find out. Because God has a job and a calling for your life that only you can fulfill. And if you don't do it, nobody else will. Number three, the Christian life demands personal responsibility. God doesn't call groups. God doesn't say, okay, we're going to take all these people in this section right here, and I'm going to call you. God calls people. He calls a person and a person and a person and a person. God calls people, not groups. And the Christian life is not a cafeteria line where you and I go through and say, well, I want some of that, and I want some of that, and I want some of this, but I don't want that, and I don't want that, and I don't, I'm not interested in this, and I never have liked that. When you go, you eat the whole buffet. It's all of it. Some of you, you know, know that great Bible verse, I buffet my body. <laughs> Wake up, it's okay. <laughs> Paul says, I press on, I keep working, I keep pursuing, I stay after it. There is sanctified ambition. You see, I, I don't believe that as a Christian, we're supposed to not have ambitions and goals and visions and dreams. Some of us spent a week at a, at a camp, uh, at a conference uh, two weeks ago on thinking and planning and dreaming. Let me ask you, what would you do if money were no object and you knew you could not fail? What would you get up and do from this place? If money were no object and you knew you could not fail, what would you do differently? If you're following God's plan for your life, money is no object because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you cannot fail because God doesn't sponsor flops. So the answer to that question is, are you in God's will? Are you doing what God's told you to do? and called you to do because money is not an object and failure is not on the calendar 
Because God, if He calls you, He equips you to do what He's called you to do, and He holds you responsible to do what you know you should do. There's personal responsibility. Now, there are two dangers that we face in the Christian life. Number one, to think that we can reach a state of perfection. That is a misunderstanding of verse 16. Let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Not, not that we've reached, we can't reach a state of perfection. I, I love what the message translates this. Not that we're, now that we're on the right track, let's stay on it. To think that we'll reach a, a state of perfection, that somehow there's this magical age or magical number or magical uh, job in the church that the switch goes up and now we're mature, we're complete, we're perfect. We've arrived. We've got everything of God we could ever have. Secondly, to think that it all depends on fleshly effort to reach maturity. Oh, I'm going to gut it out. I'm going to try harder. I promise you I'm going to do better. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm going to grip my teeth, and I'm just going to make this thing work. That's fleshly effort. There's a cooperation between you and God. And when Scripture talks about perfection, it means maturity. Be mature. Be complete. God wants us to mature in our lives and for us to cooperate with Him and then to discipline ourselves as the Holy Spirit works in us, we renew our minds. And you see this in Scripture all the time. We talked about this one Sunday night a few weeks ago, that there is human responsibility and divine enablement. And God doesn't have a problem with putting those two together in the Bible. He says that we are to put off the old and put on the new. The Bible says that we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit doesn't just show up in a church and all of a sudden because we have the Holy Spirit living in us and it's living in you and it's living in me and it's living over here and it's living over there that there's going to be unity. Although the Holy Spirit is one who brings unity, He says make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit will bring it, but we have to keep it. Does that make sense? It means if you're not getting along with somebody, you need to get that straightened out because you're commanded to keep the unity of the Spirit. So there's what the Spirit brings, and then there's what we do. There's another one. Be strong in the Lord. How am I supposed to be strong? Well, I go to the gym five days a week. You can tell, can't you? I go to the gym, I work out, I run, I'm disciplined. I, you know, I'm a lean, mean fighting machine. No, it's strong in the Lord. And oh, by the way, since you're strong in the Lord, you might want to go ahead and put on the armor. Wouldn't being strong in the Lord enough? No. You're strong in the Lord, but you put on the armor. The Lord has provided some armor from you. The Lord has provided some weapons for you to fight with because you can be strong in the Lord, but you better have that shield of faith on. And you better put on the helmet of salvation. And you better have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. And while you're at it, you better make sure you walk out with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, there's what God gives us, the strength, that there's no temptation come to you, but God has made a way of escape. That greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. But knowing all that, don't go out without being dressed in your full armor. 
Warren Wiersbe wrote a book years ago, What to Wear to the War. And it's about the armor that we're supposed to wear as Christians. And Wiersbe says that, that I, every morning when I get up, as I pray every morning, I, in my prayer time, I put on the armor of God before I go out because I know I'm going to face a world that's shooting at me and trying to bring me down. Secondly, the call to forget. The call to forget. Boyce says it's the forgetting that comes when we cease to let things in the past overshadow the past. When we let the past be the past, both good and bad, and begin to look forward to what's ahead. Now there are some benefits to forgetting the past, and forgetting is an act of faith, by the way. I have to choose to forget. Now it doesn't mean you won't remember. What it means, it doesn't matter anymore. It's okay. I'm okay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't drive and run my life. Now let's talk about some Christians who live in the past. Some live with a past hurt in the church. Some of you have been hurt by churches. Uh, somebody didn't treat you right. Somebody hurt you. You quit going. You dropped out. I mean, there are people that watch us on television that don't go to church anymore, and they make us their church because they're scared they're going to be hurt. You can begin to hold a grudge. and You can begin to be bitter and angry and cynical and critical of the church. Now, let's just admit that there are churches that hurt people, and there are churches that do not love people like they should. Every church is not perfect, and every pastor is not perfect, and every staff's not perfect. I mean, those things happen. And it's easy for us to get hurt and to get offended and to take it out on the church rather than dealing with the individual or the person. Secondly, some are hurt in their families. Some of you here have gone through divorce. There are people in this room that have been physically and sexually abused. Some of you have been neglected. Some of you have never had any affirmation. Some of you have come from dysfunctional families. You've been hurt in your family. But let me encourage you to press on toward the future because if you don't, you will carry that hurt to the people that you love now, to the people who love you now. You'll carry that baggage into the next relationship and you will hurt people that you don't intend to hurt because you didn't learn from it and you didn't take it to the cross, and you didn't move on from it. Let me just give you a thought here. Don't be obsessed by things you can't change. Don't be obsessed by things you can't change. And by the way, if you were physically or sexually abused, you did nothing to cause that to happen. That was a sick person in your family that did that to you. And you can't change that. But you don't have to be obsessed by it. And you can break the cycle in your family if you make the right choices. Thirdly, some with past sin. Some of you are sitting in this room today and you're thinking, God can't forgive me of, and you can fill in the blank. 
There's no way God would love me enough to forgive me of that. I've done that so many times, or I can't believe I did it. I don't even know that I'm saved that I would commit a sin like that. So God can't forgive me. Listen, you need to get a better understanding of forgiveness and of justification. When God took your sins before the court of heaven and Jesus said, this is one I died for, then God, the judge of heaven, cleared the docket and cleared your case and pronounced not guilty on you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is not freedom to continue to sin. That's freedom to rejoice in grace. Because God doesn't hold against you what he forgives. And the last time I checked, 1 John 1, 9 still in most Bibles. That if you confess with your mouth and admit that you're a sinner, God's going to forgive you of that. He's anxious, he longs for you to walk in a full relationship with him. And a clean and pure relationship with him. Some with past success... Some of us can't forget our past. Have you ever met anybody that their favorite book in their library is their high school annual? I mean, you go over eat dinner with them. Did I show you the picture when I was the quarterback? Did, I, did, did you see when I was a cheerleader? Did, did, do, do you know who I used to be? Do you realize who I used to be? You know... Some people have got their beauty pageant crowns up and they got their trophies up and they got all this kind of stuff and, and they make a point, you know, you got to come back. Here's what I was 20 years ago. But what are you today? That's great. That's great. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of the way God made you. But what are you today? Can I just remind you that the good old days weren't really that good? Some of us are still living in high school, and to be honest, I never want to go through puberty again. I don't want to go through pimples. I don't want to go through dating. I don't want to go through rejection. I don't want to wear those goofy things you wear at proms. I don't want to do that anymore. I've been there, done that. I checked the box. I got their certificate. I'm through with it. I'm glad to be where I am right now. I don't want to go back and relive 25. That wasn't a very good year. I, there's some, because see, listen, folks, if you go back and get the good, you've also got to go back and pick up the bad. You don't get to be selective. You and I need to learn not to glory in our successes, but to honor God with them. And not to talk about things that are so old that they're stale. And by the way, that applies to the church too. We could begin to rest on the countless victories and blessings that God has given us as a church. We could begin to pat ourselves on the back and say, boy, you know, almost 50 years as a church and God has blessed us and God has moved and God has worked and we see the baptistry waters and, you know, we lead the association in baptisms every year for the last 26 or 27 years we've led the association. We could start thumping our chest and going, boy, we are somebody. But if we fail to move forward, our past means nothing. 
There are churches in every community that used to have success that don't have it anymore because they quit pushing forward and they got comfortable and settled in in what they were doing and in the way they wanted it to be and they didn't stretch and they quit seeing a lost community and they began to die. We can't afford to do that. When God gave Israel the manna, it was a daily lesson of daily trust. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 19, Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it, talking about the manna, until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. Instead of trusting God every day for the manna, there were people in Israel who said, no, I'm not going to trust God because I don't know if he's going to be here tomorrow. I don't know if he'll show up. I don't know if the bread truck's going to make it. So I'm going to put a little to the side over here, and I'm going to make sure that I've got something to eat. And it got worms in it, and it grew foul. One commentator said, many Christians have a stinking experience. It's so old it smells. Let me ask you, not how successful were you 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but how are you doing right now? How's your life today? Or you just keep going back to the past because there's nothing new and fresh. Manly Beasley used to always ask this question, what are you trusting God for today? Now let me ask you, what are you trusting God for today? Not the prayer he answered 20 years ago or last year, but what are you trusting God for right now, today? What are you believing God for in this moment? There's some who uh, I think will miss what God wants to do and refresh this year. We had a great, great meeting last year. I mean, it was just leading up to it and during and following was great. But folks, we can't live in the past. That was last year. This is a new year. It will be different. Secondly, some people are going to miss it because they're going to check out and say, well, I went last year and it was good, but you know, I'm not really, I don't know where I'm really going to commit to it this year. But this may be the year when God does something significant with you. He may have done something significant in people around you, but didn't do anything in you. This may be the time when he does something significant in you. And there's a third reason why we might miss it, is that we won't pray and ask God to do something new. Jim McBride challenged our staff this year that refresh needs to begin with our staff before refresh starts. You see, refresh is not an event. Refresh is really about one thing, personal preparation on each of our parts to meet with God. And if you personally prepare to meet with God, you will have revival. If nobody else does, you'll have it. Because God is ready to meet us more than we are ready to meet Him. Now, finally, some with past service. I've done all I'm going to do. I've served God. I've, I've done what I'm... 
going to do. I, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to get away. I'm going to take my weekends for myself. I've raised my kids. I've done my duty for God and country and the church. And so I'm, my life's my own now. Folks, we are saved to serve. We need a whole new group of ushers and greeters who can work at 11 o'clock to help us to get people to the right places so we're not overusing the people we're already using. If you can help with that, you need to see Rob Martin. You need to see Bobby Todd. You need to see some people that can put you in a place where you can help us so we're not overworking some people. We need some people who come to 815 Sunday School to stay and help us get going in 11 o'clock and help us with our children. You're already here. You used to be in here until noon anyway, and you're going to get out earlier than if I was preaching at 11. Think of the benefits. Think of the positives. Beware of thinking that because I served once that I'm relieved of service. What's the old song? Serve the Lord with gladness. We are to be glad to serve God. All right. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Let me just say something very simple here. It means his past didn't control him. His defeats or his victories. Paul did not live in the past. He didn't live weighted down by the fact that he had been there for the murder of Stephen or the persecution of the church. He didn't live in the past thinking that he had missed it by being a staunch Pharisee. He didn't live in the past by saying, look, I've already been on two missionary journeys. I don't need to do a third one. I've already done this. I've already preached here. I've already done it. I've accomplished everything. I think I'll just retire and, and just move to the beach and watch the tide come in. Paul said, neither my defeats nor my victories will drive me. I'm pressing forward. I'm forgetting what's behind, and I'm moving forward because every day is a new day of opportunity to serve Christ. Finally, a call to reach forward. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is a picture of extending yourself. It's a picture of a race where two runners are neck and neck. And they're straining and they're striving to, to cross the line. They're stretching their bodies to the limit. Peter Snell was an Olympic runner for Australia. He won three gold medals. Somebody asked him how he ran, three go, ran and won three gold medals. And he said, I get out front and I go flat out. I get out front and I go flat out. God's called us to be out front people, not people who lag behind in the pack, but to be out front kind of people and to not worry about things that won't matter five minutes after we're gone, but to think about things that matter for eternity. Some of what has consumed all of us this past week are things that will not matter if we die today. And yet we've spent very little time this past week thinking about things that will matter if we die today. Things that will last throughout eternity. And so God calls us to, to press and to reach forward to what lies ahead. Paul knew that failure was possible. He had not arrived. He would not crossed the line yet. And so what does he do? First of all, he blocks out what's not important. He says, forgetting. But then he fixes his mind on what's important, reaching. I forget 
so that I can reach. I don't just forget, and that's the end of it. I forget so that I can reach, so that I can press on to something that is more important, of greater value. You see, the day you and I are satisfied, we're sunk. The, the day that we are complacent, we become carnal. And the day we backslide, we lose blessings. God wants us to press forward. Look at it, verse 12. I press on. Nothing passive about this. Verse 13, reaching or striving. Verse 14, I press on. I pursue relentlessly. Verse 16, let us keep on living. What? Toward a goal. Verse 13, the one thing. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal, toward the purpose that drives me. A concentrated purpose, a goal, a mark out ahead of us that keeps us working and longing and striving and thinking so that we're not apathetic, so that we're just not in neutral, so that we're not running carelessly and aimlessly through life, but we have a purpose for our lives. Paul says, I'm pressing toward that goal. That's where my attention is fixed. That's where I'm focused. That's what I'm determined to do because out ahead of me is a prize. Now, Paul takes from the Greek and Roman games where the judge gave an award to the winner. And Paul says, I'm going to run so that I can win. I mean, everybody wants to be a winner, don't they? Nobody wants to be a loser. There's a scene in Facing the Giants where uh, a player has left the team, and the team's, oh, there goes the season, there goes the season, and, and the coach turns to one of the other coaches and says, says uh, season started yet? No, it hasn't started yet. We're, we're still undefeated. You see, every team is undefeated until they play the game. Some teams play the game to try to keep from having a losing season, and some teams play the game to win championships. There's a difference between playing like a loser and not to lose and playing like you want to win and gain the prize. One of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. There were some Christians involved in making that film, and they took out uh, some pretty severe vulgarity out of that film uh, because they wanted it to be a film that people could watch. And so uh, when, you, when you see that film, if you've seen that film, you know Denzel Washington plays the head coach, and he comes in, a school is integrated, and, and there's tension between the black and the white elements in that school, and the head coach had been white, and now he's an assistant coach, and all that's going, but they start winning, and they have an undefeated season. They get to the championship game, and it's halftime, and they're behind. And Denzel Washington sort of admits defeat. He says, well, guys, you played a good game. You played hard. Still another half to go. And, and nobody ever thought we'd get this far. And we've played hard and we've played good. And I'm proud of you. No matter what happens out there on that field, I'm proud of you. And one of the black athletes says, coach, excuse me, but uh, so far... We're perfect. We've never lost a game. We are perfect. And if it's okay with you, 
we're going to go out and win this ball game and finish what we started. And they did. You see, some of us are at the early part of the game of life, and some of us are at halftime, and some of us in the halftime age, and I'm talking about people from about 35 to 55, some of us have decided, well, maybe we can just run the clock and get through. Rather than saying, God's still giving me two quarters to play. And I'm going to play this game to the fullest. And I'm going to live this life to the max. And I'm going to do everything that God has set for me to do with my life. And I'm going to finish not crawling, not sitting, not whimpering, not running backwards. I'm going to finish stretching with everything I have to cross the finish line so that I can gain the prize. The prize, folks, is not heaven. The prize is Jesus. He's the prize. There's a prayer that I want you to write down in your Bible somewhere. It's one worth writing down in your Bible. By Robert Murray McChain. I would encourage you, I would even dare you, to pray this prayer. Lord, make me as holy. Lord, make me as holy as it is possible for a pardoned sinner to be. Lord, make me as holy as it is possible for a pardoned sinner to be. Father, we come to you in this invitation time and know that the enemy and the world and the flesh battle against us being who we are supposed to be and what we are supposed to be. And God, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you would touch each individual heart in this room that we might long for everything you have for us in Christ Jesus. I pray for people in this room, Father, who don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that even now your Holy Spirit will convict them of sin and that when we stand to sing, Father, that your Spirit would prompt them to move down these aisles and to talk to these men at the front and to share their need for Christ. Lord, all of us have decisions to make today. There's nobody that gets to check out of this one. We have decisions to decide if we're going to live in the past or press on to the future. Lord, I for one choose to press on to the future, to the high calling of Christ Jesus. We're standing, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you to step out and come on the very first note. As the praise team begins to sing, you step out and you come and find one of these men and share your decision with them right now. See